Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is George Gaskell. I am a co-director for Planning and Resources. You were probably hoping to see one of my colleagues who is going to chair this meeting, Felicia Yap, who's an expert on uh, Southeast Asia and Singapore, but uh, the inclement weather has got in the way of the trains from Edinburgh. And indeed, we're delighted that Victoria Glendening has made it. She's come up from Somerset in the far west, or middle west of this country, and that too is also underwater. Anyway, I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to this evening's event, and particularly delighted to welcome Victoria Glendening back to the school. She was here about five years ago uh, at our inaugural literary festival, in a panel discussion with Michael Holroyd and others on writing biographies. Um, if I may do a plug for the Literary Festival, the fifth one uh, starts at the end of February. I think the uh, programme will be on the website of the school in the next two or three weeks. Uh, it's in part a celebration of the 300th anniversary of Diderot's Encyclopedia, and it's called Branching Out. Uh, Lots of uh, interesting sessions, and I hope you will uh, have a look at the website and come along to that. So, uh, <coughs> following on from uh, a panel session on biography, it's of note that we have this evening one of our most distinguished writers of biographies. Uh, Victoria has written about Elizabeth Bowen, uh, Vita Sackville-West, Edith Sitwell... Trollope and uh, Leonard Wolf. She's also written three novels and has four children, one of whom, Simon, is a good friend of mine and a very uh, energetic and distinguished member of our European Institute. Now, before I introduce Victoria, I have to make one or two announcements. Uh, firstly, uh, there is a Twitter hashtag for this event. Um, have I been told what it is? <laughs> It'll be on the title slide. It'll be on the title slide. Jolly good. So that'll turn up. And those of you who... LSE Raffles. LSE Raffles. Perfect. Uh, the event is being recorded. We have a million downloads a month, apparently. Uh, so lots of people will be enjoying this who uh, can't make it this evening. And after the lecture, there will be a book signing. Um, very nice book. I had the opportunity to read the first third, and it really is an uh, incredible story. So without further ado, may I introduce Victoria Glendening, who's going to talk about Raffles and the Great, the Golden Opportunity. Thank you, George, very much. Can everybody hear me? Yes? When I first said that I was going to be writing about Thomas Stamford Raffles, some people thought I meant a hotel. Everyone in the world has heard of Raffles Hotel in Singapore. There are also in Singapore schools, colleges, businesses, medical centres, auctioneers, investment management companies, shopping malls, clubs, street squares, landmarks service departments, and for all I know, launderettes, all called either Raffles or Stanford. 
Until recently, Singapore Airlines called their business class Raffles class. So I thought I'd better consult an intellectual property lawyer out there. And Raffles is like a brand that belongs to everybody and nobody in Singapore. The name delivers an instant message, exclusive, probably expensive, uniquely Singaporean heritage. His image is everywhere in Singapore. Here he is among the skyscrapers. And that's all because in 1819, Sir Stanford Raffles raised the British flag on a small, jungle-covered island the size of the Isle of Wight and founded a settlement which has become the city-state of Singapore. He was also Lieutenant Governor of Java and of Bengkulu in West Sumatra. That's not all he did in the East Indies, the region he called the archipelago, only a part of what he was. A whole book could be written about Raffles the ethnologist, another one about Raffles the natural historian, and the reality of him has been completely swallowed up by his image and his name. He's been reimagined by history writers, both as a hero and more recently as a villain of the British Empire. This is early-ish empire. It's the Regency period. The child who would become Queen Victoria was only seven years old when Raffles died. And the high Victorian empire later needed to line up its myths and heroic figures, and Raffles was recruited as one of them. And since then, in the early decades of post-colonialism, his reputation was questioned. Maybe he was a self-seeking scoundrel. But he made almost no money either for the East India Company or for himself. And it should be possible now to take a long step back from the weight of post-colonial guilt on the one hand and post-colonial revisionism on the other and see situations and people for what they were like. And it would be as easy to paint a black picture of Raffles as a golden one as it would indeed of you or me, of any of us. And neither... Both would be true and both would be untrue and neither would show him as he was. And often learning about him, I felt I recognised him. At any period, such people erupt. He was the entrepreneur of his own ideals and a utopian imperialist. He wanted fame and success and he wanted to do good. He was high-strung, clever, articulate, impetuous, charming small in stature and physically fragile. He had unusual resources of energy, curiosity and resilience. He was loyal, supporting his friends and family to an extent that was unwise, even in those days of nepotism and accepted patronage. He inspired profound devotion in some colleagues and made violent enemies of others, especially military men. He loved his mother and sisters and looked after them. He loved his wives, both of whom were remarkable women. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, just like an overview, and we can discuss his measures, his religious position, his ideas on civilization, empire, education, anything like afterwards. His dates, by the way, are 1781 to 1826. Raffles had no social advantages. He grew up um, in East Street, Walworth. Walworth, as you know, now is a a very busy part of South London. Then East Street was a lane which petered out into the fields towards the Thames. 
uh, just south of the Elephant and Castle, which was already then a busy traffic hub for coaches. Tom's father went to the bad. I discovered that his, he left the family and ended up in an almshouse for decayed and destitute sea captains in Deptford. That's him. His problem may have been gambling on the horses, I think, because his son would never, ever attend a race meeting in all his life. And tales his slave-trading father told him may also have contributed to Raffles' lifelong crusade against slavery. Because wherever he was out east, he attempted to free or did free or partially freed slaves, much to his employer's agitation. He was precipitous, they said, incautious. Yes, he was. And young Tom Raffles had almost no education, just two years in school. He had to support his family. From the age of 14, he was a clerk for the East India Company, that 200-year-old commercial corporation trading in spices mainly with the East Indies and tea from China, administering British territories and trading settlements in fractious quarrelsome partnership with Parliament. The, the company virtually was the British Empire in those days, and its cumbersome practices and cronyism seem to me to have quite a lot in common with dysfunctional global corporations today. And it was called by Adam Smith an absurdity five years before Raffles was even born. It was losing money, but it was too big to fail. It was the biggest employer in all Britain, with its own fleet of ships, the East India Men, its own army, its own civil service, law officers, doctors, chaplains, and so on, in the settlements out east. And the company contained and constrained Raffles all his working life, and finally spat him out while reaping the benefits of his greatest achievement, Singapore. For ten whole years as a skinny youth, he sat hunched on a high stool in a dim airless office somewhere at the top of these pompous premises, India House on Leadenhall Street. He was a human word processor, copying with a quill pen letters, reports, memos, drafts, abstracts and dispatches, often in triplicate. And all the documents were circulated to the directors of the company and their departments, mulled over, amended, recopied. In those days of sale, it could take up to ten months each way for dispatches to travel between London and India. And Raffles' way, once he was out east, which is the way of all impatient innovators, was to do something first and ask for approval afterwards. And usually what came from India House was a directive not to take the measure in question, by which time, of course, he'd already done it. It was a period of long everything and slow everything, long letters, long sermons, long speeches in Parliament, long attention spans. And Raffles himself, in later life, wrote enormously long dispatches explaining the measures he had taking, taken and describing the conditions of the territories where he was posted. And I think these were often left unread at India House. Just too much information. And Tom's best friend when he was at Clark here was the son of the influential secretary of the company, William Ramsey. And it was through him that Raffles had his first opportunity. The Ramseys opened Tom Raffles's eyes to a life beyond East Street, Woolworth. They widened his horizons. Charles Lamb, the essayist, sat on a stool in the accounting department at India House 
for 33 years before retiring with a pension, as many did, becoming, as Lamb said, doggedly contented like wild animals in cages. Doggedly contented would never describe Raffles and he never got a pension. Now, I think you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps only so far. In anyone's life, if you are lucky, there are one or two crucial people who give a leg up, a chance, seeing your potential. And Mr. Ramsey was the first of these for Raffles, and the opportunity was this. The company's overseas headquarters were in Calcutta, in in Bengal, where where the Governor-General of India lived in state and called the shots. Even the Governor-General was a company appointee, though the selection had to be approved by the British Crown. And the company had two trading settlements on the west coast of the Malaysian peninsula, Penang, an island just off the coast, and the much longer-established port of Malacca. The British competed for the spice trade in the Indies with the Portuguese and then the Dutch and the French. Malacca was originally a Portuguese possession, then Dutch, then British. It was decided at India House to upgrade Penang and to downgrade Malacca. And the upgrading of Penang involved making it a presidency on the par with Madras and Bombay. And that meant sending out a lot more civil servants and a governor. And Mr. Ramsey arranged for raffles to be one of those sent out to Penang as assistant secretary to government on a hugely better salary. And shortly before he sailed, he got married. He was 23. His bride, Olivia, was a surprising choice. She was 10 years older than him, half Irish and half Circassian. She already had a daughter born out of wedlock and had already been briefly married to somebody quite else who died. Her backstory is riveting, but we don't have the time. It's in the book. She was tall, dark, and theatrical. She liked to drink and a party. She wrote poetry, and Raffles loved her. My Olivia, he called her. And because of her, of her past, she was the subject of scandal. And in the narrow confines of the ship out, there was gossip. And the new governor of Penang's wife, a Scotch lady, ostracised her. And Raffles kept his head down and used the voyage to learn Malay. And the new couple took out with them to Penang, Raffles' favourite sister, pretty 16-year-old Marianne. The company settlements were full of young men who, if they did not make an arrangement with a local lady, and even if they did, needed wives from home. And actually Marianne found her first husband on one of the new clerks going out on the same ship. And two more of Raffles' sisters, Harriet and Leonora, came out to Penang subsequently. Leonora found a widower quickly. Marriages were arranged with amazing speed out there. Both parties knew the needs and expectations, so there was absolutely no point hanging about. (laughs) Harriet didn't find anybody to suit her and went home, returned empty, as the cruel phrase was. The upgrade of Penang never really worked. This is Penang. And please do abandon any idea that life for most of the British in the East at that time was opulent or amusing. Some people made vast fortunes by private trading. Some made just enough to retire on. Many did not. No one intended to stay. This was not colonisation. Raffles did have views on colonisation that you might want to investigate. There was not enough commercial activity in Penang to give the enlarged administration enough to do, and the settlement relapsed into petty bureaucracy and backbiting. 
with the nagging knowledge that if you felt fine today, you or your loved ones might be dead tomorrow. Malaria, typhoid, cholera, dysentery, depression, loneliness, frenzy, despair. Raffles, however, made the most of this as of every opportunity and was recommended for his zeal. Now, zeal was the great praise word of the period, implying energy, commitment, initiative. Later in his career, he was reprimanded for his excess of zeal because he made um, decisions with no reference to the authorities. In Penang, he worked hard, signing up for every additional job, Malay translator to government, acting secretary to government, full secretary with additional pay. He made himself pretty indispensable to the governors and unpopular among some of his young colleagues as a result. And someone he met in Penang enlarged his intellectual horizons as the Ramses had enlarged his social horizons. He and Olivia found an intimate friend in John Layden, a phenomenally brilliant crofter's son from Tiviotdale, a poet and linguist. He knew, kind of, 17 languages and a student of the history and cultures of the people who spoke them. Now, Layden was a walking, talking encyclopedia, holding forth and dispensing unasked-for information non-stop in broad scots in a loud, grating voice. And I rather think from what everyone said about him at the time that he had what we now call Asperger's syndrome. He was sentimentally infatuated with Olivia, and importantly, he raised Raffles' game, inspiring him to excel in Oriental studies and become a scholar and a collector of Eastern manuscripts. <coughs> These were two ardent young men, and Leyden inspired Raffles with an extravagant fantasy of bringing together the whole eastern archipelago, reconstituting the ancient indigenous kingdoms, all united under benign British rule. This dream, by the way, is entirely against company policy, which was all about trade, not territory. Administering and defending territory just meant more expense. Then in Malacca, Raffles met the, met the British resident there, Major William Parker, an older seasoned man with a mixed-race, common-law wife and family. And Farker was a serious naturalist. He collected wild animals and plants and employed Chinese artists to paint them. Raffles didn't have a magpie mind. He had a mind like a magnet. And through Farker, he became as passionate about natural history as he was about the collecting of Malay manuscripts, both for the intrinsic fascination and for the professional advantage that any special expertise might afford. But the difference was that Raffles instinctively understood the importance of going straight to the top. For while Farker reported his discoveries to the Asiatic Society in Calcutta, Raffles sent back materials, specimens and descriptions to India House and to the Royal Society in London, making a name for himself where it counted more. Then the next opportunity... Hearing that a post was open on a spice island recently taken from the French, Raffles sailed for Calcutta, again going straight to the top to assert his availability. The post had already gone, but Raffles, who had a naturally easy, charming manner, duly charmed Lord Minto, here's Lord Minto, who correctly formed a high opinion of his abilities. And Minto was the second influential person to make a real difference to Raffles' life. taking a personal and fatherly interest in him. And Raffles engaged with Minto on something dramatic and dangerous, the invasion of Java. 
Java had been taken by the French, with whom Britain and her allies were at war, and Minto appointed Raffles his personal agent for planning the invasion. This involved secretly collecting intelligence on the defences of Java and contacting the chiefs and rajas and sultans and the Dutch, the Dutch who remained in Java after the French takeover, to get them all on side with the British and ensure, with the most veiled of threats, their cooperation and planning the route of the invasion fleet. And Raffles sailed for Java on Minto's ship. And with the coast of Java in sight, they called it the Promised Land. He wrote um, from on board to his best friend, Mr. Ramsey's son. This, this is his voice. You always said I was a strange, wild fellow, insatiable in ambition, though meek as a maiden. I'm as unhappy at times as any poor wretch need be. I have times when I'm as happy as I think it is possible for man to be. And it is one of those life-inspiring moments that I am sharing with you à la distance. Adieu, my dear Ramsay, for the present. My paper is out, and dinner announced, so farewell. Conquer we must. And conquer they did. Lord Minto's brief from London was simply to take Batavia, the capital, garrison it, and leave the island to itself. But Minto and Raffles decided to take and administer for Britain's benefit, and as they believed for Java's, the whole island. Minto laid down guidelines for the governance and the administrative structure and sailed back to Calcutta. Raffles remained. Minto had appointed him Lieutenant Governor of Java. This was opportunity of an overwhelming kind. I mean... Here is Raffles, just 30 years old, a back office man, with the sole experience of being secretary to government in a smallish settlement, left to rule, in theory at least, a country with much the same population as England at the time, that is about 5 million. John Layden had come along too. Raffles really needed his vision and enthusiasm. But just two days after they all landed, Layden, who was riddled with malaria, died. This was terrible. Raffles had his Olivia, and the jolly group of young ADCs, aides-de-camp, they gathered around them and treated as family at Wietzenorch, the governor's country house, uh, about 35 miles away from unhealthy, fetid Batavia. But he had only a small British staff, and he relied a lot on the Dutch administrators who had been in post before the French ousted them. Raffles was insecure in the job, and the job itself was insecure. He had no job security. Because if the British and their allies won the war with Napoleon, as was looking very likely, it was understood that in the post-war reshuffle, Java would certainly be returned to the Dutch. And Lord Minto said, before he left Java, while we are here, let us do as much good as we can. So anyone else but Raffles would have cruised a bit, especially as there was no money in the Treasury. Java had to be subsidised unwillingly from Bengal and there was a crisis in the currency. The commander of the French, having issued rapidly depreciating paper money, quantitative easing, or toilet paper, as one writer has put it, to make up for lack of coinage. But Raffles behaved as he was going to be there forever, commissioning a survey of the whole island and initiating a drastic reform of the land tenure system to improve the lives of the feudal village cultivators and introduce a cash economy. And we can talk about the details of that system afterwards if anyone's interested. He was much more interested in improving conditions than in making 
an immediate, he always worked that, an immediate profit in italics for the company, though he believed that his more humane measures would ultimately deliver more produce to the government for trading. Of course, the company was only interested in the bottom line. Minto was in favour of his reforms but urged caution, and it only partly worked. For a start, the peasants couldn't pay their land rate because they had no money. And Raffles sold off tracts of good land to private buyers to raise cash for government and get rid of the rubbish paper money. But he made a naive mistake in becoming involved privately in a land purchase himself. But there were other opportunities in Java. He built up a huge collection, hundreds of intricately crafted shadow puppets, artefacts, tools, musical instruments, plants and animals and birds, manuscripts, antiquities. Ethnologists and students of world music owe a great deal to Raffles. Some of you may have been to Borobudur in central Java. Under his auspices, the great damaged 9th century sacred monument was uncovered from the jungle. And he personally acquired from Borobudur quite a lot of things, including the Buddha head now in the British Museum, which was one of, um, remember, Neil McGregor's The History of the World in a Hundred Objects, it was one of Neil McGregor's hundred objects. Then disaster. 1814 was an awful year. Lord Minto, his greatest support, was recalled and died soon after. In, in Java, Raffles made a bad enemy in General Robert Rollo Gillespie, a pathologically heroic and self-forking soldier who had led the invasion and remained to command the garrison. Gillespie did not like being told what to do by an inexperienced upstart civilian, and Raffles did not have the tact or the experience to deal wisely with an uppity colonel. And the reasons for bad relations, which were quite usual between the civil and the military, which is another topic that's worth discussing. Gillespie resigned his command, and back in Calcutta, he handed a document to the new Governor-General, which amounted to an impeachment of Lieutenant Governor Raffles for maladministration and corruption. In the same year, Raffles' beloved Olivia died and was buried next to Leyden, and Raffles was devastated. The one bright spot was that Gillespie was killed in battle in India. (laughs) He was mourned extravagantly by the British public, and I think Raffles was the only person on the planet who was glad. But news came then that the directors of the company whatever the shelved judgment might be on Gillespie's damaging charges, had decided that Mr. Raffles' continuance in the government of Java was highly inexpedient. He was recalled, sacked really. And so ill and broken, he took leave in England. But England was another opportunity. This man was so resilient. In London, he made a great success. Effectively, he rebranded himself. He had brought his whole great ethnological and natural history collections with him in 30 tons of wooden crates, as well as a 10-year-old Papuan boy, called Dick, here he is. And all this was of supreme interest to the scientific community. The great men of the town, as Raffle called them, aristocrats interested in science or orientalism or natural history, and the fellows of the Royal Society and the Royal Institution, and their leading lights, Sir Joseph Banks, here he is, I think he looks a bit of a bully, and Sir Humphrey Davy. And Raffles, who had a very attractive personality, as well as this astonishing collection, was a sensation. 
he had a formal portrait of himself painted, now in the National Portrait Gallery, very much the colonial administrator. You'd never guess he'd been sacked. And again, romantic and bohemian, now in the Zoological Society. He was elected a member of the Royal Society. He became friends with Princess Charlotte, heir to the throne, presumptive heir to the throne, after her father, the Prince Regent, just married to Prince Leopold. And he got to know her by sending her as a wedding present some tables <coughs> and chairs made, by the beautiful, made of the beautiful teak timber he had brought back from Java. Here she is. And the Prince Regent, influenced by his daughter, made Raffles a knight. When he came to London, he'd started using his second given name, Stamford. And now, Tom Raffles from Walworth was now Sir Stamford Raffles. Here's his coat of arms on his book plate. And he found a new wife. <coughs> Not particularly pretty and over 30, Sophia Hull, Hull turned out to be a wonderful partner. She is devotedly attached to me, Raffles wrote to his cousin. He didn't say, I am devotedly attached to her. She indeed adored him, to the extent that when, after his death, she compiled a monumental memoir of her husband, she wrote Olivia out of history altogether. There's no mention of Olivia at all, except in one inaccurate footnote. So it's as if Sophia was the one and only um, woman that Raffles ever loved. Here is Sophia in a daffy eastern outfit, with her wedding ring you will see prominently displayed, and it's a companion piece to this foxy-haired one of her husband, done at the same time. <laughs> I, think, I think it's got a bit bleached out, uh, but I think that's much nearer his natural colouring than the former ones where his hair looks much darker. And his next and inglorious posting was as Lieutenant Governor of Ben Coolen, a small, underfunded settlement on the remote west coast of Sumatra. Raffles was only going back east at all to make some money on which to live in England. Now, Sophia could do for him what Olivia could not. She gave him children. She had her first baby on the ship out, and two more in rapid succession. Charlotte, Leopold, and Stamford Marsden, nicknamed Cooksey. Raffles adored his children. He built his growing family a house on a hill. Here it is being cleared of forest. And his babies played with the semi-wild animals and were around his legs all day. And there was a triumph. He, with Sophia, who was pregnant with Cooksey but would never be parted from him, went on an incredibly arduous expedition into the jungle interior where their botanist colleague, Dr Arnold, came across the biggest flower in the world, a parasite more than a yard wide, which became officially designated Raphlesia arnoldi, Maybe the biggest flower in the world, but I don't think it's very beautiful, and it smells like rotten meat, but it made him famous. The next opportunity. Penang and Benkulam were now the only British possessions remaining to the British after the post-war concessions to the Dutch. Batavia had gone to. And the crucial trade route between India and China was threatened. Some new trading point between the two south of the Malacca Strait, which is that, was completely essential. And Raffles, in hot water with the new Governor-General, Lord Hastings, for some misjudged and intemperate acts, went to Calcutta. And just as with Lord Minto, he turned disaster into opportunity and found a new adventure. He was entrusted 
with identifying and securing this potential new settlement, which was, neatly, to come under the jurisdiction of himself from Bencoolen. Lord Hastings was giving him a golden opportunity. And Raffles and Hastings agreed that the experienced Major Farker from Malacca was the man to negotiate with relevant chiefs in the area and to remain to head up whatever new station it was. Raffles himself still had to administer Bencoolen. And just in case anybody doesn't know, Singapore is here, just on the tip. When Raffles and Farker landed on the jungle-covered island with soldiers, there were only about 150 people there, very poor fishing people, and a few Chinese, and a local chief. And after baroque negotiations with rivalrous chiefs from Johor on the mainland, Raffles signed a treaty. He, he made a lease. He didn't actually buy it. It was sort of like a leasehold thing. <coughs> and the Union flag was raised, thereby changing the economic and political geography of Southeast Asia forever. Because Singapore was an instant success. When Raffles back, went back with his family four months later, more than 15 miles of road had already been laid. There were vessels in the bay, 5,000 people already living there, flocking in from around the archipelago to take advantage of the new trading opportunities. Raffles had made a <coughs> free port, no port duties. It was thrilling. Singapore is a child of my own, said Raffles. And back in Bencoolen, uh, he and Sophia had their private garden of Eden with now a fourth baby, Ella, the Raffles knew that he would have to send the older ones back to England before too, too long. If European children stayed on at an age when they started running around and having freedom, they picked up all sorts of infections and parasites and lethal things that um, indigenous children were more immune to. And so it was quite dangerous to, to let the children stay on. And Raffles and Sophia didn't want to break up their family, but they left it too late. How shall I tell you, Raffles wrote to his sister Marianne, that we have lost our dear, darling Leopold. And that was the only beginning. Cooksey died next, then Charlotte. Three darlings lost within six months. They sent the baby Ella home with a nurse to Sophia's parents. What a sad and lonely house, wrote Raffles. We wander from room to room. And Raffles was also now having terrible headaches, not just like a headache, but whole head agonising headaches, which made him, he said, almost mad. He returned to Singapore, now my almost only child, to find 10,000 inhabitants and a bustling commercial port. He built a bungalow for himself on the hill. For those of you who know that Singapore, it's now, it's now called Fort Canning. And he wrote a great letter about looking down from his hill, down the high street of the little new town, out into the bay, where sailing ships, Chinese junks, local vessels with at sails were filling the view. The irony is that um, you can't actually see the harbour at all from his hill now because of the cluster of high-rises all along the foreshore. You wouldn't know there's any water there. And then tragically... I'm afraid, typically, Raffles fell out with Farker, and only partly because he was a military man like Gillespie. Raffles had the highest ideals for his new settlement. Singapore was where all his visions were to come real, and he had set everything out for Farker in regulations. 
No slavery, no gaming, no opium dealing, no court duties, and a planned town. And Farker, the pragmatist, more laid back and not conformed in any of these. You have to have some sympathy with him. He was the man on the spot. He had to do, do everything. And with his mixed-race family, he was much closer to the people than Raffles could ever be, and more tolerant of traditional practices. And Raffles, angry and disappointed, deranged by his crippling headaches, brutally sacked Farker, who was to stake his own claim as the rightful founder of Singapore, uh, which was a running sore. We can talk about that too. Another little Raffles baby was born and died. It was time to go home. Their troubles were not over. He and Sophia, already ill and exhausted, were shipwrecked the first night out as their vessel, the fame, caught fire. Um, it had saltpeter in the hole and the whole thing went up. They were saved because it was only the first night out. They, they said that if it had been the second night out, they would not have been saved, but they were within rowing distance of somebody seeing them from, from the shore. They were saved, but his new and vast collection of marvellous things and all his personal and professional papers and all the capital saved for his retirement went down to the bottom of the Indian Ocean. So you see, this is not a rags-to-riches story. It's more interesting than that. And what Raffles achieved in his short, sick time back home, including the co-founding of the London Zoo, you can ask me anything about it. He bought a house and farm, Highwood in Mill Hill. He put in for a pension from the company. But instead, no pension, but an invoice, a bill, for an enormous, totally unpayable sum for unauthorised undertakings and unpaid duties. A modern neurologist has determined, a Chinese, man, a Chinese neurologist in Singapore, has determined exactly by looking at all the evidence, what was the physical disorder in his brain. Uh, one morning, Sophia woke up at this house at five o'clock in the morning, and Raffles wasn't beside her, so she went to look for him. And there he was, slumped on the stairs, and he was dead. And I always wonder, was it that his headaches were so bad that he couldn't stay in bed anymore? Or was he going to look something up, or make a note, or write something? But... Um, he was dead, and it was the morning before his 46th birthday. So in short, Raffles had a kind of greatness, but not really of the kind that the old myths of empire made it out to be. He was a visionary, and he was capable of serious misjudgment. And I first became hooked by reading um, what I mentioned, the massive and hagiographic memoir of her husband, which Safar compiled and published four years after his death. Safar also got a statue erected to Raffles in Westminster Abbey and jump-started a heroic critical heritage. I read Safar's book and I thought, this is a great story, but it's not the whole story. And I found there hadn't been a full biography of Thomas Stamford Raffles for 40 years. Um, I have to tell you that there are, you may know, there are five linear miles of East India Company papers in the India office papers in the British Library. So there's probably more to be found out since it would take more than a lifetime to read them all. But then no biography tells the whole story. I was lucky in that I could use the Raffles family papers in the British Library, which had not been available to 
earlier biographers. Nothing very early, of course, because of possessive Sophia having destroyed everything about Olivia and most, most of the family letters before Raffles married her. Uh, it's very easy to talk about people in the past as if they never really existed. I got closest to the physical man himself in the house of one of his descendants in Tunbridge Wells, where I saw a waistcoat of his. It was yellow silk with tiny black polka dots. It was 37 inches round the chest, I measured it, which actually is quite small for an adult man, uh, with a turn-up collar and embroidered trim, and embroidered buttons, I think it was made in the East, and his dark sweat stains under the arms. And then after a careful unwrapping of two folded papers, a large handful of his hair that was cut off at his autopsy, fine as a child's, light bright brown with foxy glints, fresh and shining as if it had been cut off yesterday. And I'm just back now, I mean like this week, from launching the book in Singapore and staying at Raffles Hotel and paying my respects again to his statue, the founder of Singapore. So that's all I'll tell you now, but we can go on. Well, thank you very much. Fascinating. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a question and answer session, but we have roving mics. I know this is probably a small enough auditorium for you not to need them, but for the podcast, it's absolutely essential that you ask your question through this. So, first question, please. Gentlemen on the right. Thank you. Um, you said that um, a Chinese doctor had uh, diagnosed the cause of uh, the headaches mm. that he had. Uh, what was the cause? What was the disease that I he had? I that. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a tumour. The uh, diagnosis is cerebral arteriovenous malformation. There's a drawing of it in the book. I mean, of what it was like. It was like a great excrescence of completely gratuitous veins and arteries pressing on the side, out of his brain and on the side of his brain, which were giving him these headaches. And in fact, apparently that his whole forehead was slightly swollen up, but, but burned before it. And it's a condition that um, cat is usually congenital and the person doesn't survive. It can be contracted later in life, very often as the, probably as a result of a tropical infection. And the, he had had one collapse in the street during that time, the last time in London, which was probably a small bleed from that. But the, the, what caused his death was, was a, lo- a massive bleed, a large bleed from that. But nothing could have been done about it. I mean, uh, certainly not then, and quite hard to be thinking about it now, I should think. And everybody kept saying, because of the headaches, he should have come home earlier. It wouldn't have made any difference. Wouldn't have made any Just, just two points. Um, what happened to his first collection, the one that he managed to bring back? Was it sold, dispersed, did it go no, to the... I'd really like to say something about why he collected, because yeah, yeah. it's a corollary of that. Um, he wasn't collecting for himself, but he wasn't collecting for gain. Every, he said everything... India House had its own mm. museum, um, and the Brit- British Museum took a lot of things. He was collecting for cultural propaganda. 
he wanted to show that Java had been a great and rich civilization and could be again, which is why the British, he couldn't bear it, the British were letting it go back. I mean, he really loved Java. And he brought back so much that what you see in the British Museum, in the Enlightenment Gallery in the British Museum, mostly, is just a few things which are his. I mean, there's, in fact, two Buddha heads. There's a stone harpy, and there's a lot of, not in the Enlightenment room, but in the Southeast Asian department, there's a lot of small images that he brought back, little figures. But in a repository in um, North London, uh, there is... It's like a great hangar, which is the ethnological repository. Like bats in the dark, there's hundreds of shadow puppets, hundreds of artefacts, two complete gamelan orchestras, um, tools, weapons, you know. And they're all catalogued beautifully, whether he actually did the writing of the labels. And they're all looked after. But unless you know what to go and see them, you there are so many they couldn't possibly be displayed but um, so that's where they are and his wife they had some in their house in in, Hyde, in Mill Hill that I showed you um, they had that one room was called the museum they had quite a nice thing there again the man in Tunbridge Wells has quite a lot of those but um, he didn't want them for himself no but it sounds like there's enough for a special exhibition at the British Museum perhaps you should suggest that to Neil Rivera Every now and then they do something about raffles, but mostly it's about his botanical drawings and things. Um, not his, I mean the ones he commissioned, which are the, when you think of the period, sort of 1815, 1816, and mostly artists were Chinese and very exquisite. They are absolutely glorious, both the animal ones and the plant ones. And they had a show there and went and in Edinburgh. But, uh, yeah, maybe it'd be nice. It's an awful waste of money. Hi. Um, you alluded to the fact that he uh, did land reform in Java. Mm. Uh, do we know what that was like? And oh, what we do. And <laughs> you really want to hear? And, and did it persist under the Dutch? Yeah. Um, first, what it was. When, what Raffles inherited was a system by which uh, the Dutch called the local chiefs the regents. So we call, we call them the regents. Um, the regents dealt with the British government. The regents didn't even deal with the village cultivators. The village cultivators, through village headmen, and a series of middlemen, and relations of the sultan or the chief, or whatever he was, passed up their um, rice. It was mainly rice and produce. And so that's what the sultan lived on, as you might say. And the British took what they wanted from the, not the British, the Dutch took it from there. Um, and Raffles' thing was to cut out the regents and all the middlemen and deal directly with the villages. And he started directly with the headmen of the villages rather than the individual cultivators. And he wanted to introduce the Kashi Conway. Um, because the, the trouble was he didn't have enough time and he didn't have enough cash. If, if Bengal had been willing to put a lot of cash into the island, he could have done it. But up to this point, the um, poor peasants and, and didn't even use it really. It, it wasn't something they used. So, in order, and, and because he wanted cash economy, he imposed a small land rent on the villages and dealt directly for rice with the villages. And then it also, he had to pay off the regents 
who were cut off from their source of free money or free supplies and free forced labour, which was equally important, um, by paying them some kind of compensation. And that too was expensive. So there was all money going out, money going out, and there's yet nothing coming in. And so it, that's why it didn't really work. Later he took an even further step in selected areas, it was quite complicated, as you can imagine, and dealt not just with the village headman, but with each individual cultivator, which as they were illiterate, was very difficult for them to keep accounts. So though it did work in a kind of way where it worked, and there was nothing wrong with it, it was called the Riofwari system, and it, had worked, it, it was used in India also. It wasn't, he hadn't just thought of it, though he said he hadn't read the main Indian textbook on it, but he would have heard about it. Um, and the Dutch did keep on, not the dealing directly with the individual cultivators, but the headman one. And, and the, the whole Dutch and Java thing collapsed into a war a few years later. But in the period until then, they, had, they did keep it on. And it, it, there was nothing wrong with it, except there wasn't enough money on the island to jump-start it, and he didn't have enough time to see it through. And do you know if he learned any of the local languages on Java? Oh, he, yes, he, he was very good at Malay, to start with. Um, he would never have been able to translate literary Malay, high Malay, which is very complex and also very elusive and um, indirect and full of proverbs and allusions and... Um, it takes a very long time to learn Heimelay. And he, he would have always needed help with that. But he had good spoken Malay, which in fact was quite rare among the young administrators at that time, who at the best would have known a few bossy, hortatory phrases, you know, sort of directions. But he, he had enough Malay to um, make friends with Malay people. And he, he was very in favour of the Malay people, very fond of them. And in Java, he learned some Javanese. He certainly took lessons from Javanese. He didn't learn as much Javanese as some of his colleagues, as say, well, it doesn't matter, John Crawford, who, who was another administrator who knew better Javanese. But he made a big effort with languages and always had um, language instructors with him, and Munshi, and people to help him translate. And uh, so he, he was getting all these historical documents in as well. On the fifth row, which is that teacher. Hi, um, you said that uh, he was also, in addition to collecting artifacts and manuscripts, he was also a natural historian. I'm wondering how much, whether he had as much enthusiasm for, enthusiasm for natural history as he did, uh, uh, and what he may have done during that time to basically to t- talk much about his life as a natural historian in your talk. What is exactly the question? Could you just say it again? Um... Could you expand on his life as a natural historian? Yes, it was a very strange period to be being a collector of natural history things because uh, there was no international botanical or zoological community in touch with each other because communications were so bad. So very often, somebody like Raffles or Farker, but let's say Raffles, would find an animal, a creature, that he thought had not been described and identified and painted before. And so um, it would be put forth, say, to the Royal Society as a new discovery. Meanwhile, 
the French were very good at this. The French may have described it already, you know, but there was no way of knowing this. And there was no proper, um, even though the Linnaean system was kind of up and running up to a point, the, 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 the classification was very wobbly and classification was very unreliable. And so it's a very sort of, um, it's an on-the-cusp period for natural history between um, almost the mythical and, and the properly scientific. And there were quarrels between um, Raffles and Parker about the, the Malayan taper that they both thought they found, you know. And of course the irony is that people who actually lived in these places knew they were there all the time, obviously, and had their own names for them. It was, <laughs> it, they were not actually discovering anything, but showing it to the West, who, who didn't know about it. Uh, I think the most, I think I did mention this before, the most um, attractive um, results, because they had, because obviously as they were talking, they had to get everything drawn and painted, and the drawings and paintings were exquisite and absolutely beautiful. And um, there was an exhibition in Edinburgh, which they called Raffles Ark Redrawn, um, a year ago, something like that, which had a lovely catalogue with a great deal of his um, botanical and zoological drawings and paintings that he had commissioned. And the whole thing about Rafflesia Arnoldi, even, um, he didn't think that up. Sir Joseph Banks, the curator of Sir Joseph Banks' private museum, decided to call it that. It was all a bit arbitrary in those days, classification. I don't know if that answers your question. Now. <laughs> Thank you very much. You, the the, the British, British school in Java is a stamp of apples. He seems to show a great interest in Japanese culture. I'm not an expert on the Dutch rule, but it seemed that it might have been a better rule than the Dutch throughout the 19th century because um, uh, I understand too much about the Dutch period there, but uh, it wasn't always so sympathetic to the cultural aspects. Would you say anything about it? Would you think the British would... Well, I can say what... I have <coughs> separately studied the Dutch in Java. I, have, I know exactly what Raffles thought about the Dutch in Java and what the British contemporaries thought about the Dutch. And they thought that the Dutch regime was much more brutal, the Dutch kept slaves, the Dutch... They, they sort of went... You know that phrase, going naked. They went naked in a bad way and became very slobbish and lazy and crude and... But there was a very great difference in their culture because they didn't bring out wives from Holland. They married into the local population and so there was a huge mixed-race population by the time Raffles came along. And the, the mixed-race wives were a sort of mixture of Dutch and Japanese but wore local dress. And uh, this is slightly on point, but it's odd. Olivia, this is one... Olivia... In, to the British, to the uneducated British, it looked as if the ladies were coming to the receptions at Government House in their nightclothes. You know, they didn't sort of get it about the kebab. And Olivia made rules like um, no, bare, no ladies with bare feet. They got to wear shoes. I think it would be more graceful in her if she'd simply removed her own shoes. You know, <laughs> but she didn't take that step. Uh, I think the Dutch regime was much crueler. Yes, I, I truly do, true, truly think it was. Yes. Yeah. 
you, you were right that the Dutch regime was cruel under their cultivation system. The entire Indonesia was a slave colony, which was later exported into apartheid South Africa. Mm. But then there are a few questions which I'm curious I know. Was Raffles sacked from the East India Company because he got involved in bad company? He was trying to, to make some money for himself by mixing up with the Brooke brothers in, in opium heroin trade. That, that is the calculation that I arrived at a couple of years ago at the Suez. Did he get, sorry, did he get sacked because he got mixed up with the opium trade? Is that what you're asking? Well, he was, he was trying to make some money for himself by mixing up with the Brooke brothers, the Raja Brooke brothers. Himself. No? Um, I do think the company, I mean, when you think about the years after Raffles died, Opium was the one thing the company was trying to flog. <laughs> they weren't worried about selling opium. No, he was sacked. Recalled is the word. But I mean, he wasn't sacked from the company because he was given another posting. He was recalled from being left undercover. I call it sacked. He was recalled from being left undercover because he was not making the money, because he was losing money, because he was making all these changes that they thought completely pointless. You think it was about... They wouldn't have minded him. They wouldn't have minded if he was selling opium and making them lots of money. They didn't worry about that. Opium in England at that time had the same status as alcohol does now. Much more. Much more. Much more. Better status. Because the the company was trying to annex China through the gate of Canton, through the opium trade. Today we call it WMD in those days. You know, it was an acceptable sure, thing to do. Sure, But that was slightly after Raffles' time. Opium yes, was. but it has been around quite a while. And the annexation of Burma by Bengal was a fine a backdoor route to annex China. To do well, that, they, 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 have to China. Annex, they have to annex China. Now, coming back, Raffles. Raffles, coming back to Raffles. Coming back to Raffles. You had a second question, sorry. <laughs> Raffles was dead keen on, on getting contacts with China and Japan, absolutely right. He kept sending expeditions to Japan, which were sent back. And the second question, please. Second question was, his three daughters in Singapore, were they poisoned by, by the local Penghul and Malay chiefs because Raffles took some of their land? I haven't understood the question. Have you? Were the three daughters poisoned? By no, no. We have a conspiracy theory. <laughs> These were three little children under five. They got dysentery. They had no way of rehydrating in those days. That they died within days. Do you have any sense of, at the time of his death, whether Raffles considered that his life had been a success? What he would have thought. Yeah. Oh dear. His, her, his wife's memoir was wholly directed to making it seem a success. Of course, Singapore was the most amazing success. And, but it was sort of um, right at the end of his career, you see. It was when he was sick and ready to come home that it happened. And was it... Well, that's the interesting question. That you read the book and think, well, was it? You write the book and think, well, was it? You know. And it's like everybody's life. You know, is it worth it? I think you have to read the book and make your mind up. 
Um, what kind of moral and ethical and political stance did uh, uh, Raffles have to bring to the situation he found himself in? I'd love to talk about his attitude to religion. Um, in some ways, he was he was an Enlightenment man, but like all liberals, he had all liberals are very liberal up to a point, and then there's something that they're not liberal about. And that was very much the case with Enlightenment England. He was he had no strong religious faith to sustain him in adversity. He was what we might call a nominal Christian. And he, he wrote that um, he thought that Christian principles were, were very good principles for um, sustaining a society. But he always wrote, now this is an interesting bit to me, he always wrote God with a small g. And that is in an age when people, he, scat, he like a real scattered capital letters for nouns everywhere and arbitrary, you know, for tables or chairs or houses, they come up with capital letters. So his right God with a small g was quite a statement. And he also would refer more easily to providence than to God. He, had a, he was a fatalist. He had a very strong sense of hubris. When he and the children and Sophia were happy, happy in Benkulan, he said to her, don't bank on it, something, you know, we we not always be as happy as this, uh, as indeed they were not. And he was quite stoical in misfortune. Uh, but he was not a religious man. And he was very funny about missionaries because um, previously the East India Company had not allowed missionaries in their settlements because they were a commercial company. They weren't in the, they weren't, they weren't on their agenda to be making converts. And, but then there was a, the, grew up a very strong evangelical Christian group both in the directorship of the company and in parliament. So, with the renewal of the charter of the company in 1813, it was said that missionaries must be accepted or invited or allowed into the settlements. And um, Raffles was very, very rude about the missionaries. He thought they were sort of grade three people and rather silly and didn't see why they were there. He thought they were rubbish at their job. He thought, if I had tried to convert people, I'm sure I would have been subverted by now. <coughs> and the only things he thought they were good for were, um, they brought printing presses with them for their tracts, and that was very useful because it was like him having a photocopier. You know, he could use it for his um, whatever he wanted. And also for teaching. If they ran schools, he was very pleased. He'd, uh, we could talk about education if you want, because it is important, but um, school teaching, and he only admired them if they took the trouble to learn the local language too. It's kind of following on from one of the previous questions, but... Um, could you give us a sense of what his um, funeral kind of service was like and what, how his legacy has developed uh, since then? Oh, it's funeral quite was kind of Thank you. terrible because <laughs> he and William Wilberforce, who was the great pioneer of anti-slavery, both bought properties, they were friends, both bought properties on Highwood Hill, next door to each other, and they wanted to build a chapel of ease there, or William Wilberforce did, uh, because Henham Parish Church was four miles away and they didn't have a car as well. So. And the, the vicar of Hendon was a man who made his money in the slave trade, or whose family money came from the slave trade. So Raffles and Wilberforce were the kind of people that he emphatically did not like. So he was horrible to them. And when Raffles died so suddenly, the Chaclavis hadn't been yet bought, though it's there now, built, though it's there now. Um, and so Raffles was buried at Henham Parish Church 
but with no fanfare, no panoply, and no marking to his grave. And, nobody, and then by the time Sophia died in 1858, nobody knew, nobody knew where his grave was. And then around the time of the First World War, they were enlarging the parish church attendance, and in, they were taking up the um, big paving stones, and in the, chance, in the chancel they took up a big stone, and there underneath it was a coffin, and the wood had rotted all away, but the brass plate that had been on the coffin had fallen onto the lead box underneath, and it said, Sir Stanford Raffles, founder of St. Paul, died, blah, blah. And so everything knew where he was buried, and um, they decided not to move the coffin, put it back, and there's now a plaque that also says. But, you see, the other great thing Sapphire did, she, she prevailed upon the, the fashionable sculptor of the time, Francis Chantry, who did everybody, all the great and the good. She paid him quite a lot of money, I don't know where she got it from, <laughs> to, um, to do that vast um, statue it, uh, I showed you on a very high podium in Western Stravio. And the, the, the inscription on that is quite interesting because he's surrounded by great figures of the East India Company, in which the East India Company is like, almost like the Church of England or the Bank of England or something, he's sort of described and announced and described and announced. And on his, the East India Company isn't even mentioned. <laughs> what was the process by which the Raffles brand became so significant in Singapore, considering he, he didn't die there. Um, it, well, now, it, now it's like he's like Washington. Absolutely, yes. I think it was decided not not to write him out. You know, it was, I think it was a sort of policy decision, and that he was an asset, not a not asset. And because it's quite a, is a. Do you know Singapore? It's an extraordinarily it's an autocratic society. It's, it's extraordinarily organised. It's extraordinarily clean. And you're not allowed to have chewing gum. It's disallowed in the settlement. And some of the punishments for some things are pretty heinous. And I think it was thought that they needed a sort of figurehead. You know. And this would have been after the war, when Singapore was on, its, on the floor after the Japanese invasion and it was a question of roofs on houses and meals in mouths and I think he was sort of chosen as a kind of figurehead figure and I think a lot of people in Singapore because I ask and ask in Singapore um, they don't really much have a clue who he was uh, certainly the people who make a um, what can I say a laundrette and call it the Raffles laundrette they don't know why they're calling it the Raffles and you'd ask your ordinary Singaporean who was raffled, and they'd say, oh, founder of Singapore. You know, but finish. But it has just become the brand of Singapore. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Much, very much appreciated. Um, can you tell me, please, um, did you said it became a port when Singapore became a free port um, and, and obviously an enormous success. Was this a success that provided money for the East India Company or did the East India Company miss out on its success by not embracing it and using it actively? They were such cowards, the East India Company. They did embrace it. I mean, they, 
they recognised his success, and after having castigated Raffles for, for doing it at all, once he was a success, they'd rather sort And then there was a great row with the Dutch. Um, Raffles called it the paper war. It wasn't a real war. I mean, there were just letters between governments and ambassadors and generals, and the Dutch saying he had no right to take it. That bit of the archipelago was was really belonged to the Dutch. Uh, and, and then on the, there was a big, it was called the London Treaty of 1824, when the Dutch and the English finally sorted themselves out. And the East India Company, the Dutch gave in, and the East India Company acknowledged and accepted the success of Singapore and took it upon themselves, as it were. They, they took it, the success. I forgot what your question was. Uh, that was the question. Uh, did they make money out of it? Did they? Or was it? Yes, because I said the thing of being a free port did not last. You know, I didn't think it did. And the amount of trading that went in and out of it was enormous. Liz, <coughs> thank you. Maybe we should take uh, two or three more questions and then uh, allow some time for signing of books. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, a gentleman earlier mentioned Roger Brooke, and I was yeah. wondering if, um, more out of ignorance on my part about Raffles over Brooke, whether you'd uh, done any sort of compare and contrast, if you will, between the, the, the zeal, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. the desire for governance, <coughs> and, and placing it, well, in, in Brooke's case, at least the first, uh, placing, uh, attempting to place a, a, a robust structure over a society, and... Um, and uh, some sort of, I suppose, behind that zeal, the um, some kind of uh, uh, idealism that that perhaps undermined undermined the the character uh, to begin with. I, I don't know. Maybe there was only a certain no, period of I time think, where I that could have worked. Um, Roger Brook is the, the man who um, became a hereditary owner, almost king of Sarawak. Um, he was a generation later than Athos, of course. And he went to see Raffles' widow um, before he became the right. Oh, no, I think he, when he came back, rather like Raffles did, to get some adulation in mid career. Um, and he told her that Raffles had been a bit of an inspiration to him, certainly. Um, the one thing they both had, I mean, he made himself writer. Raffles was not without self... I don't know if I put this... He had this complete vision of a benign society, well-ordered, with the um, with the local chiefs and sultans still in power and local things still there, but with this sort of kind of he saw it as a kind of blank, benign umbrella of, of Britishness, and he did see himself <coughs> in his madder practices, especially with John Layden, as as the kind of as some kind of ruler of it all. It was almost schoolboyish. I mean, I, I think that Roger Brooke was almost schoolboyish, too. They got away with it everywhere. Final question? Do we, do oh, hang on, Keith. Yes. For a microphone. Do we know if Lee Kuan Yew took a particular view about the Raffles brand? Yes, it would have been Lee Kuan Yew, indeed, who um, would have decided that 
the Raffles brand was, was one to encourage. I mean, the Lee Kuan Yew inheritance goes on. I mean, it's just, he's, not, he, he's not quite so executive as he was, obviously. But that period is not over. The Lee Kuan Yew period is not over. Okay, well, I think we'll... Oh, it's one more question from someone at the back. Hi. Um, at the beginning of your talk, you alluded to the slightly more... Uh, some recent negative, more negative portrayals. Um, I wonder what your response is to... Negative portrayal of... Of raffles. Um, it's easy to make a ne- I noticed um, particularly there's a... A recent book um, yes, about raffles in Java. Yeah. Um, yes. I wonder what your response was to some of the uh, oh, yes. allegations I, in, fact, in that. We did a session together in Singapore last week. Oh. Um, it's called The British Invasion of Java. It's published by Monsoon Books in Singapore. And it's the only reason why I'm disappointed by it, and he's a good writer and a good researcher and all that, is that it's, it's again, you know, I said at the beginning, you can write a black legend or a golden legend about anybody. And they're both actually not good enough because it's just either demonising or mythologising heroically. And my whole aim in everything I do is to demythologise and say, you know, what is this? What is, what is he like? What is really going on? And Tim has demonised him, and it's full of phrases like, um, okay, the heart of darkness beats under the suit of the civil servant. And, <laughs> and talks about you know Raffles' avarice. Well, he, he's never. He, he, he didn't. He may have wanted lots of money. He didn't get it. Everybody wants lots of money. You know. No, he didn't. No, it, it's worth reading. For I mean, because the research is very good, and he's very good on Raffles' mistakes, which are genuine and true. And, but it's just that the purple tone of demonization robs it of, of, of its truth. Right, on that point, thank you very much. Uh... <laughs>